So when we're talking about living lead, you know, how do we actually navigate life? Jesus wants to be that sense of presence for you and me. And so how do we cultivate that relationship? That's what we're talking about. Last week, we talked about being led by God as first being led into the wilderness. That is being led into quiet, consistent times alone with God. And uh, we were taking a look at Matthew chapter 4. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up your Bible with me. Matthew chapter 4. We were asking the question, what does it mean to be a disciple? How does that look like in my context and stuff? And when we found Matthew chapter 4, we see this very first call of discipleship where Jesus says those two words, follow me, right? Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And we asked the question, well, how in the world are we supposed to follow him? What does that look like? I don't have fishing nets. What does it really look like to live this life that is led? And so we decided that the roadmap that Matthew is giving us is actually right here. It's before and after. It's the book ends. Before this call to discipleship in Matthew 4, verse 19, you actually see what Jesus did in the wilderness. That's uh, in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. And then in Matthew 5 through 7, you have a picture of what Jesus taught on the mountainside. So it's not just what Jesus did, but what Jesus said that gives us the picture of what it's like to live the life of a disciple. And so today, we're, uh, we're talking about walking in the Word. We're going to go back to our first bookend, Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. And I'm just going to say a prayer that God would really bless us with His Spirit as we open up these pages. Let's, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we're asking just now that as we open up these pages of Scripture, that we would see more than just ink on paper, but that we would see and hear the voice of the living God. We're asking, Father, that you would send us your Holy Spirit, that you would teach us and instruct us in the way that we should go. We need to be led by you. We pray in Jesus' name, let the family say, amen. Amen. All right, so Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Actually, I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and read all the way through, all the way through this passage together. This, is, this may be a familiar passage to some of us. Uh, some, some of us, this may be brand new, but this is a picture of Jesus in the wilderness. So I'm reading from the New King James Bible. It says this, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry, as if we needed to know, right? But in verse 3 it says, Now, when the tempter came to him in that state of, of physical need, when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are what? The Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he, Jesus, answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then, verse 5, Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are what? The Son of God. Okay. Throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. Whoa! Do you know that the devil knows scripture too? Pretty crazy. All right. In verse 7, Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. In verse 8, Temptation number three comes around. Again, the devil took him on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Whoa. 
kind of an easy out here, right? Jesus really did want to reclaim the world. And here Satan is, hey, go ahead. I'll give it over as long as you just worship me. And in verse 10, then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Just by a show of hands, how many of you have heard or read this story before? Yeah? Okay, so some, some, some familiarity there. Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. This is immediately after what significant event in Jesus' life? His baptism, right? Yeah, we, we actually took a look at that last time. It's right there at the very end of chapter 3, verse 17. And this is actually a very significant thing. Uh, you know, immediately after Jesus comes up out of the waters of baptism, it says in chapter 3, verse 17, suddenly a voice came from heaven. Okay, so this is God the Father speaking to his son. Suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved, what? Son, in whom I am well pleased. When Jesus hears this, what facial expression do you imagine on his face? Can you just show me really quick? Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, this is, this is probably like, like super uh, exciting for him. This is affirming, right? This is not something that he like, shudders at. This is something that he finds significance in. Um, this is a by faith moment that suddenly becomes crystal clear, like, yes, I am walking by faith in the right thing, right? But what's really interesting is that when this is spoken, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This wasn't just, this wasn't just so that God could say something nice to his kid. This wasn't just some like warm fuzzy that, that God wanted to give to his son. This was actually very significant. It was a declaration. It was a declaration of identity, and it was a declaration of mission. What do I mean by that? A declaration of identity and a declaration of mission. Very interesting that when we see this, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He's actually quoting from the Old Testament. This is actually familiar stuff that the Jewish nation knew so well. In Psalm 2, verse 6 and 7, this is a prophecy about the Messiah. It says, Yet I have set my what? My king on my holy hill. You are my son. So when God says, you're my son, he's saying, hey, you have a kingly identity. He's quoting something from the old, the ancient scriptures. You have a kingly identity. You are my son. But he's also saying, in whom I am well pleased. And that's a quotation from Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. Behold my, what is that word right there? Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my elect one, in whom my soul delights. When God says, you are my son, in whom I am well pleased, he's combining this kingly identity with a servant identity. And he's giving Jesus this affirmation. Hey, it's not just that I like you, but this is your calling. You're the king of the nations, and yet you're the servant of the nations. And in Isaiah, when you look through Isaiah 42, 44, 49, 53, you see these prophecies about God's servant. And God's servant is someone who would restore God's people. And, and, and God's servant is someone who would lift up God's people and glorify him. Yet, in the last of the servant songs, so to speak, in Isaiah 40, I'm sorry, 53, we see that the servant does not restore God's people by just declaring it so and kind of taking a throne. But the servant restores God's people through suffering. 
by their, uh, he, was tra- uh, he was wounded for their transgressions. He was pierced for their iniquities. Isaiah 53 verse 5 says, And by his stripes they were healed. So check this out. When God says, you're my son and you're my servant to Jesus there on the banks of the Jordan River, he's saying, you're a king who's on his way to the cross. This is big. And when Jesus walks into the wilderness, this is what's ringing in his heart. Son, in whom I am well pleased, I'm the king that is on the way to the cross, that I will restore the nations by giving my life for the nations. And for Jesus... Yeah, so that facial expression might be like super beaming with warm, fuzzy feelings, but at the same time, that facial expression could be very sober. You know, oh, this is heavy. This is what I'm called for. It's thrilling and sobering all at the same time. So you fast forward 40 days to the passage that we read. And, and if, this, if this is like heavy on Jesus' mind, you can bet that this is heavy on Satan's mind too. That he, he's kind of piecing all of this together. Whoa, there's a king that will go through suffering. This son is also a servant. And no wonder when Jesus uh, is encountered by the enemy there, uh, no wonder Satan's first words are, if you really are that son. You know, he's it's like, man, would, would God really let his king look like you do right now? 40 years emaciated, hungered, you know, just kind of like uh, deathly. Like, is this really the picture of God's son and servant? What's going on here? So let's look at the story again. Let's look at these three temptations again, because this is very interesting. Look at the story again as, as a challenge to this identity, as a challenge to this mission. Notice temptation number one. This is Matthew chapter four, verse three. Now, when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. How many of you have ever been tempted to make stones into bread before? No. Okay. This is, this is kind of a foreign temptation, right? This isn't like an everyday, oh, yeah, I'm tempted to turn. No. But what we do notice is that Jesus is being tempted in the realm of his felt need. Right? Forty days fasting, and he is hungry, right? This, the devil's first assault is to identify where is Jesus feeling a need right now? Where is he feeling weak? I mean, we don't usually picture Jesus as weak, but physically speaking, he he felt weakness. And so Satan targets Jesus' greatest felt need or weakness in his time of greatest need and weakness. Temptation number two, very interesting. Um, and, and we'll, we'll kind of take a look at how Jesus actually addresses these. Obviously, verse 4, Jesus doesn't kind of, he, he basically doesn't give audience to this temptation. Hey, 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 hey. I find strength in something else. It doesn't need to be bread. It doesn't need to be rocks turning into bread. It, it's the word of God, right? And in verse 5, here's temptation number 2. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, again, challenging his identity, challenging his mission, throw yourself down, for it is written... He shall give his angels charge over you. So in this second temptation, he's actually trying to leverage what Jesus felt as strength, you know, being able to quote scripture, being able to rely upon God. He's leveraging that strength and he's using it to accomplish something else. Do you see? Yeah. So here, in in the first temptation, Satan is targeting his weakness. In the second temptation, Satan is targeting Jesus' strength. The thing that he does well. And he's using that to serve his own needs. 
is using that to try to encourage him to, to seek his own glory through his strength. Now, each of us has strengths, whether we are, no matter how modest or, or not we are, each of us has strengths, each of us has gifts and passions that we bring to the table. Do you realize that there are times where Satan doesn't just look for your weak spots, but he looks for your strengths, and he tries to twist them into encouraging you to depart from God's will and word. Have you noticed that? Like the things that you're good at, he'll actually use to become a distraction to us. Or he'll actually try to twist that so that we use those strengths not for God's glory, but for our own glory. So target number one, Jesus' greatest need. Target number two, Jesus' greatest strength, his reliance upon God. And he's just saying, hey, if you really trust God with all that, look, he can catch you. Just throw yourself off. Temptation number three. Temptation number three. It comes down in verse eight. And again, the devil took him on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Where Jesus was tempted in his areas of greatest weakness and then his greatest strength, here it's his greatest hope his greatest ambition. The things that we want, the things that we really, really hope for, even those heavenly goals, even those heavenly ambitions, even those can become a source of struggle. Even those can become a source of temptation. Satan targets Jesus' life ambition, accomplishing a heavenly goal, but then he he tries to uh, use human means to accomplish that heavenly goal. See, the ends do not always justify the means, and sometimes Satan wants to use that to his advantage. Hey, you've got this. You want your kids to to go to church, so go ahead and and force them, make them go to church. You know, that may not necessarily be the right way to do that, you know? You want want, um, this for your your neighbor or your friend, and so you're just going to give them all, you know, all the information you've got, but sometimes it's not necessarily at the right time or in the right way, And, and And Satan can kind of use that to become a stumbling block, not just to us, but to the people around us. Greatest weakness, greatest strength, even our greatest ambitions. Those are the things that Satan kind of throws our way. And as it was against Jesus, so are Satan's schemes against us. Again, we may not be tempted to to throw ourselves off a balcony. No, please don't be tempted to do that, okay? We may not be tempted to to, to make uh, stones into bread, But the truth is that we are tempted when it comes to our areas of weakness. We are tempted even in our areas of strength. We are tempted in our areas of ambition and goals. But the bottom line temptation, whatever the realm, the bottom line temptation is to do things your way, not God's way. And that's what Jesus was being tempted with. In his weakness, in his strength, in his ambition, he was being tempted and, and kind of appealed to, to depart from God's will and word. What was that will and word? It was this. Hey, you're my son and you're my servant. You're the, you're the one that's going to restore the nations, but you're going to do it by giving your life for the nations. Not by turning stones into bread. Not by throwing yourself off a, a temple so that other people can see you. Not by just kind of taking the easy way out and bowing down to Satan. Satan's temptations are always, no matter what kind of cloak, what kind of facade they have, Satan's temptations to you and to, to me are always to depart from God's will and word whether in our weakness, strength, or ambitions. Hey, just do it this way. God has said it. Ah, but I need to work. I need to do this. But wait a minute. If God has said it, why do it your own way? This is God's will. This is God's word. 
Jesus demonstrates for us that to live the life that is led is to live the life that is by the word. I'll say it again. The anointed king of the nations would bear the cross for the nations. And, sorry, I'm kind of backing up here. And so Satan's targets, oh man, wow, I totally missed these, all these visuals. <laughs> his weakness, his felt need, his strength, and his ambition. These are Satan's targets, not just for Jesus, but also in our experience too. And what Jesus shows us is that the life that is led by God is a life that lives by the word. Jesus committed himself to being led by something other than his weakness. Oh man, I'm feeling really hungry. Let me be led by my stomach. No. Jesus was led not just by his strength. Okay, well, you know, the, the Bible actually does say this, and Satan's suggesting this, so yeah, I'll go ahead and, and, and do that. I'll, I'll rely on God to, to catch me. Jesus was not led even by his, you know, the, the goal or the, the end target. He wasn't just, okay, ends justify the means, whatever way, in order to get the nations. <laughs> no, 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 no. He wanted to stick with God's way and God's declared word. And so Jesus, de- like, he illustrates this so perfectly that the life that is led by God is a life that lives by the word. By the word. I don't know, this, this may even sound cliche. Living by the word, what, what are we talking about here? And how do we actually experience that too? And so from here on out, I'll just get, we're going to get super, super practical and we'll try to do this in a short amount of time. But there are, I think, from Jesus' example here in Matthew 4, there are three essentials. Three essentials of living by the word. And so um, you got pen and paper, hopefully. If you don't, um, I can share slides or whatever, or you can listen to the sermon recording um, on, the, on our church website. But here's one thing that I see Jesus doing right off the bat. In order to live by the word, he makes the word what? Priority. He makes the word priority. What do we mean by that? Well, did you notice, to, 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 excuse me, in response to temptation number one in verse four, Matthew chapter four, verse four. Notice what he says. But he answered and said, first three words out of his mouth, it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus is saying, hey, you're tempting me with food right now. That's, that's nice. This is my area of felt weakness right now. But he's going to prize God's word over and above the very thing that would meet his, his need. In other words, more than he needed food, he needed God's word. He made the word a priority, and that's the first thing. That's the first step in, in, in actually living by the word. Question, how can you tell when something is really important to you? What, what are the, the indicators that, that tell you that something is really important to you? Maybe it's how much money you spend on it, how much time you spend with it. Or how about this, how quickly you notice when that thing is missing. When you're missing your car keys, how long does it take for you to notice that you're missing your car keys? Especially if you have little ones around that tend to move things from one place to another in your house, right? <laughs> or when you're missing your cell phone, how long does it take for you to notice, right? I haven't felt my leg vibrate in a while, right? I haven't gotten a notification from my, my child or my spouse or whatever. I, you notice these things right away because they're very important to you. But, um, I don't know, in a Filipino household, we always knew when we were out of rice, okay? <laughs> when, when the rice was, oh, we need to go, we need to, go to the store because we can't even have another meal until. Or in our household, it's when, when we're out of peanut butter, man, that, oh, it's over. It's, we can't even have breakfast when we don't have peanut butter, right? 
When, you, when it takes a short amount of time to notice that you're missing something, it's, a, it's usually an indicator that that thing is very vital to your existence, right? Question, how long does it take you to notice that you've been without the word? Wow, does that kind of put things into perspective a little bit? Just a little. How long does it take you to notice that you haven't dug into the word, that you haven't heard a word from God? For Jesus, it would be like moment by moment. If he hasn't heard from his father, if he doesn't have a word from the Lord, so to speak, he, he's feeling it. He is feeling it. He's not just running to the cafeteria line. He's running to the word of God. Like, Lord, I need to hear from you. He made the word priority. Do you, do you follow that? In Job chapter 23, verse 12, and this isn't just the priority of Jesus. Job 23, verse 12. Actually, let's take a look at that. Job 23, verse 12. I don't have it on the screen but Job, or maybe you call it Job, um, Job 23, verse 12. Here it is. It's right before the book of Psalms, Old Testament, Job 23, verse 12. Man, notice what this, this uh, patriarch of the Old Testament scripture says about God's word. If you're there, go ahead and say amen. Yeah, Job 23, verse 12. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than what? More than my necessary food. This wasn't just, oh, that's just Jesus. He thinks that, you know, you need God's word more than you need bread. No, this is Job. This is our human experience. Jesus was walking in our shoes. I would rather trust his opinion than than mine. For Jesus, it was a matter of life and death. And for us, it's a matter of faith. Do we really determine value? Do we really place priority upon the word in the same way that Job did? In the same way that Jesus did? And, you know, let me just say this before we go on to essential number two. That it is actually possible to prize God's word and still keep it at at arm's length. It's possible for people to say, yes, the Bible is a great thing to revere the Bible, to respect the Bible, and yet be completely ignorant of the Bible. You know what I mean? Actually, I was just reading an article by Albert Moeller, and he's like quoting all these statistics. This was published on ChristianityToday.com like a couple of years ago. But Albert Moeller was pointing out these statistics, the Barna statistics and all sorts of kinds of things. Um, I'll just name a few. 60% of Americans, apparently, cannot name even five of the Ten Commandments. In fact, in another survey, it was shown that people could name more ingredients of the McDonald's Big Mac than they could of the Ten Commandments. Yeah, maybe because there's a nice little jingle behind it, right? Um, Another statistic here, uh, 12% of adults believe that Joan of Arc was Noah's wife. Uh, When high school seniors were surveyed, 50% of high school seniors thought that Sodom and Gomorrah were husband and wife. Um, And when it comes to the Sermon on the Mount, many, a considerable number, it says, a considerable number thought that Billy Graham preached the Sermon on the Mount. And if you believe that Billy Graham preached the Sermon on the Mount, I I don't mean to poke fun or anything like that, but here's the point. This was published in an article. The article title was The Scandal of Biblical Illiteracy. Let me just share a quote here. This is from that article. He's quoting some other researchers. It says, Researchers George Gallup and Jim Castelli put the problem squarely. Americans revere the Bible, but by and large, they don't read it. Because they don't read it, they have become a nation of biblical illiterates. 
And again, this isn't to poke fun. This isn't to like um, make us feel bad or guilt trip us into reading the Bible. No, but this does kind of help us pull the veil back on a false sense of, I got this. I, I like the Bible, but it, just because I like the Bible doesn't mean I know the Bible, right? And so prioritizing the Bible, making the word priority, needs to go along with this one, making the word familiar, making the word familiar. In other words, immersing ourselves in Scripture day by day, night by night, regularly, frequently, consistently. How do we do this? How do we do this? Let me just suggest to you, obviously there's lots of different ways that we can make ourselves familiar with the Bible. Maybe you have a Bible app. Maybe you have an audio Bible. You know, play the Bible while you're running. um, Whatever the the case might be. But let me just suggest two things here. Uh, Psalm 119 verse 11. David says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not what? That I might not sin against you. David's not talking about hiding like, like you can't find it kind of thing. He's not talking about shelving the Bible somewhere. He's talking about tucking it away in the, the recesses of your memory, making it become part of your hard drive, so to speak. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. You know, we, I don't know how often we talk about this, but memorizing scripture is of immense value, right? In our kids' Sabbath school classes, like we do this, you know, even a scripture song, or you get stickers for saying your memory verses. I don't know, like as we get older and stuff, we kind of just assume that everybody has these memory verses in mind. But let me just encourage you, take time to memorize scripture. Take time to, to hide the word in your heart. You may think that this is hard or difficult, but I tell you what, I, I bet you, you know some lines from your favorite movie, Right? Like, if I were to say, Luke, I am, you know what comes next, right? I am, and <laughs> I'm not saying that that's your favorite movie, nor should it be. But, but I'm telling you that the things that, that we hear often are things that get embedded. And so what if we actually allowed ourselves to become familiar with God's word in such a way that when things happen in our lives, I don't know, has, has this ever happened to you? You're walking down the store and you see something that kind of reminds you of either a movie or a song. And all of a sudden that song starts just kind of ringing through your head. Does that, does that ever happen to anybody? You kind of live a musical, like you're walking down the street. <laughs> yeah, okay, maybe not. Maybe that's just me. But here's the thing. Those are things that are embedded in your hard drive because either you've allowed it to, you know, you've, you've kind of sung the song a lot, or you've watched that, that TV show a lot, or whatever. And I'm not saying that's bad, but that's stuff that's in your memory, and when life happens, it just conjures that up and brings it to the forefront of your mind. What would happen if the things that were in that hard drive were words from God? What would happen if things that, like, the word was so embedded in you that when you ran into a challenge, when you stubbed your toe, when you, you know, drove over here, experienced that, it would actually bring to mind scripture. Wow. And then that scripture would shape how you view that experience, how you react to that experience, and how you continue to walk beyond that experience. That's the value of memorizing. And the other value is that it takes time to memorize the Bible. And so you're not only memorizing or taking time with a book and pages, you're taking time with Jesus. So memorization, memorization. The other tip that I'll share with you when it comes to making the Bible familiar, making the word familiar, Psalm 1 verse 2, it says, but they delight in the law of the Lord. This is talking about the blessed person. They delight in the law of the Lord, meditating on it day and night. 
meditating on it. Uh, the Hebrew word there is haga. Can you try saying that? Haga. And then apologize to the person for spitting on that. Okay. Uh, <laughs> haga is actually, it literally, it means chewing, chewing on something. In fact, in other Old Testament passages where that word is used, it's in reference to a dove that is cooing or a lion that is growling over its prey. <laughs> it's like, kind of like when you bite into something juicy and you're like, mm, mm, mm. that's haga. And so when it says that uh, they delight in the law of the Lord because they're meditating on it day and night, they're feasting on God's word. They're chewing on it. They're allowing it to become satisfying to their soul. And that's something that, um, that I believe that we kind of shy away from, that, even just that word, meditate, because we, there are some kind of perverse versions of meditation, like Eastern forms of meditation, completely different from biblical meditation. Eastern forms of meditation are about emptying your mind. Biblical meditation is about chewing on the Bible so that it fills your mind. Do you follow that? Yeah? And so they, uh, the blessed person does this day and night. This is how we become familiar with the word. We read it. We reread it. We chew on it. We reflect on it. We ask questions about it. Those kinds of things cause us to become familiar with the word. So make the word priority. Make the word familiar. And here's another one. Make the word, what's that? Make the word personal. Make the word personal. And this is the one that I kind of want to slow down a little bit because this is probably the key step that I missed for a long time. You know, I had Bible reading plans when I was in high school and stuff. And like that totally, you know, for one, that opened my eyes to a lot of things. But when I started making the word personal, that's when things became powerful. Um, When I started reading the Bible for myself and actually seeing wow, how that speaks to me relevantly, not just for my homework assignment or whatever, not just for my Sabbath school lesson. Like, when I heard the word speaking to me, that's when it made it powerful. So let me just share a couple of of ways that we make the word personal. Number one is identification. Sorry if this feels like classroom homework or whatever, because this is like, this is so like nuts and bolts, rubber meets the road. I, I really desire us to live by the word and to make the word personal. So how do we do this? Identification. This is what Jesus did. Did you notice, simple, uh, quick fact, that when Jesus is like quoting scripture left and right, it is written, it is written, it is written, in these wilderness temptations, did you know that all of those quotations come from the book of Deuteronomy? And it's specifically Deuteronomy 8, Deuteronomy chapter 6, 6, 7, 8. It's kind of right around in there. Why? Why is Jesus quoting directly from Deuteronomy when he's out in the wilderness facing these kind of random temptations? Why is Jesus quoting from there? The truth is this, and this is, what, this is, I don't know, I mean, obviously there's no way to prove this, but this is my submission, <laughs> that Jesus was actually meditating on Deuteronomy in the wilderness. Why would Jesus be meditating on Deuteronomy in the wilderness? That's like, so, yeah, is there a rhyme or reason to that? And here's the point. Deuteronomy was spoken to the children of Israel when they were in the wilderness after 40 years and God was about to give them instructions on how to fulfill their mission in the promised land. So here's Jesus fasting for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness and he's wanting to live by the word and he doesn't have scrolls in his back pocket or anything like that so he's thinking on scripture that might have something to do with his experience. Where have God's people been in the wilderness before? Where have they been there even for 40 days? 
40 years. And he's, he's thinking upon this. And basically, when he thinks on, on the children of Israel in the wilderness, he sees himself in that story. And he identifies with it. Do you follow that? He ident- like, this was a practice of his. He identified himself. He saw a relevant, uh, a passage that was relevant to his situation, and he put himself in the shoes of the Israelites. How was God instructing them? If I hear how God is instructing them in the wilderness, maybe I can hear how God is instructing me in the wilderness. And so this is a simple practice that we can do the same. We can assume that when we open up the pages of Scripture, there is a story that resonates with my life right now. That struggle, that past conversation, that particular uh, just like weird season in my life. Man, when did somebody in the Bible go through that? And that is something we can identify with, see ourselves in their story. When we read through the stories, the miracles of Jesus, when he heals a leper or he he casts out a demon, maybe we haven't been demon-possessed. Maybe we haven't necessarily had a skin disease. But we can all resonate at some level of being in a condition that was way beyond our power to change, right? And when we see ourselves in that story and we see Jesus reaching out to the leper saying, I'm willing, be cleansed. You and I can know that Jesus is actually willing. Even though I can't change myself, Jesus is willing and able to change myself. Do you follow that? Like you you identify with the passage. Identify with the passage. Identify with the scripture. That's how it becomes personal to us. The other way is through interpretation. Now, here's the thing. We don't just, like, open up any passage of Scripture and identify with it right away. We don't just, like, open up to the passage of Judas saying, um, when Jesus says to Judas, hey, what you do, do quickly. And we say, oh, okay, what was Judas doing? And then we read the other passage in John where it says that Judas went out and hung himself. We don't want to identify with that kind of stuff. Do you you follow? (laughs) Like, we need to be discerning, right, and interpret appropriately the intended meaning and relevance from Scripture. And this is what Jesus did. When, when Satan was throwing Scripture back to him, saying, hey, you know what? In Psalm 91, it actually says that God will give his angels charge over you so that you won't even dash your foot against a stone. Jesus understood, hey, wait, 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 wait. Even though that's from Scripture, I'm not supposed to identify it with it in that way. He understood it in the context of that passage. He understood it in the context of God's character. So he used a filter. He, he used his ability to interpret. Does that, are you tracking with that? Does, that? does that make sense? Yeah? So when you identify yourself with the word and you see yourself in that story, use some uh, simple interpretation skill and just say, wait, wait, wait. What was God's intended meaning in that passage? And so that guards us against skewed agendas. It guards us against, from, uh, it guards us, uh, against the tendency to shape scripture to my life rather than my life to the scripture. Yeah. And so, you identify with it, you interpret it, <clears throat> and then here's the third part, you apply it. This is, uh, this is the now what part of making things personal. Um, this is about bridging the gap between our heads to our lives. Right? This is the part that, that actually says, okay, I'm not just going to hear the word, I'm going to be a doer of the word. And so for Jesus, the word actually determined his life destiny. The word determined his direction. The word determined his daily decisions. You see, taking the word as counselor, taking the promise as as something that you can lean on, this is what Jesus did. He said, no, 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 I'm I'm not going to tempt the Lord my God. Uh, You shall worship the Lord your God only. That, he allowed the word to shape his reactions, 
his responses, his decisions. See, the Bible is full of narratives, it's full of stories, it's full of wisdom sayings, counsel, it's full of promises. It's full of things that reveal the character of God and the kind of life he wants to shape in us. And when we see these things, I don't know if I'm the only one, but I often see what God's word has laid out and then a gap between where my life is. <laughs> um, you know, this is what God has promised, and yet this is what I've experienced. This is what God wants to do in me, and yet this is where I'm still at, you know? And when we see that gap, applying the word allows us to, it gives God the green light to close the gap. Applying the word actually, it's not as easy as that sounds. Applying the word actually requires a sense of humility and surrender. Applying the word sounds like Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but yours be done. Now, this is, this is what God wants. I may want to run to the hills right now. This cup is too much for me, right? There he is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And yet he doesn't depart from God's will. He doesn't depart from God's word. It means surrender. And I, I just, man, you know, as I was thinking on this, just how Jesus modeled this, I mean, you see how Jesus lived by the word, not just here in the wilderness, but even on the cross, in the time of his most difficult temptations, right? In the time of his most difficult struggle, Jesus clung to the word. Can I show you something really quick before we wrap up? This is, so, this is really cool. This is, okay, go with me. Matthew, Matthew 26. So we're in Matthew 4. Go to Matthew 26. This is so cool. So studying just like, man, how, how Satan just throws these things to Jesus in the wilderness, I saw the very same things on the cross. Sorry, not Matthew 26, Matthew 27. Matthew 27. <clears throat> this is crazy. If you're there, go ahead, say, go ahead and say uh, amen. Okay, Matthew 27. And this is the story of Jesus on the cross. In verse 38, then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right, another on the left, because so you're kind of getting the picture. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads. And so there, there's a lot of people watching what's taking place. That the son, the king, is now on a cross, and they're not really comprehending that. How can the king be on a cross? And notice what it says in verse 40. This is what's coming out of the mouths of the people. You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God. Where have we heard that before? In the wilderness, right? Man, these, these are people saying it, but Satan is inspiring it. Go ahead, fan that flame. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. This is essentially what Jesus was hearing behind every temptation in the wilderness. Hey, if you're the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. Use your power for yourself. If you're the Son of God, just go ahead and bow down to me. You'll have, this game will all be over. Come down from the cross. Likewise, verse 41, the chief priests also, mocking with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel. Do you hear it again? It's kind of doubting his identity, doubting his mission. Let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. There's temptation number two. It's just like a repeat. Verse 43, he trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. Third time over. And when Jesus heard this threefold assault in the wilderness, he responded with, it is written, right? He clung to the word. He lived by the word. How about on the cross? When he was surrounded by the greatest amount of darkness, when he felt the farthest from the Father, when he heard the threefold if, 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 how did Jesus respond? 
In verse 45, now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Oh, he totally threw in the towel. He had it in the wilderness. It is written, it is written, it is written. But on the cross, what happened? He quoted from scripture again. Do you realize that when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not just this heart-wrenching, desperate, I'm so dark, and where are you, God? He's actually quoting from Psalm 22, where the psalmist says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, he's identifying with scripture. He's like, oh, okay, okay. Where has somebody been so dark and depressed? The psalmist. Where has somebody been hearing this, all these doubts from outsiders, these naysayers saying, man, God doesn't even delight him. God doesn't want him. It sounds, he's identifying with scripture. He's, he's clinging to the word even on the cross. <laughs> that is so crazy to me. And when he says it, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not like he's throwing in the towel. He's clinging with everything he's got to the living word of God because the word of God is everything to him. Oh, man, is it? Okay, maybe this is just cool to me. I'm sorry. (laughs) But the very last thing that Jesus says while he's hanging on the cross, Matthew doesn't record it. John records it. John 19. It is, you guys know this? It is finished. Do you realize that the very last verse of Psalm 22 can be translated, it is done. Oh, man, Jesus is quoting from Scripture. And when you read Psalm 22, the first half is dark and desperate and depressed. And then about midway through, there's this phrase, you have answered me. And all of a sudden, all the complaints turn into praises. The second half of Psalm 22, and it ends with, it is finished. Jesus, even on the cross, clung to the word of God. He made the word priority. He made the word familiar, and he made the word personal. It wasn't just at the beginning of his life. It was all the way through, even in the most dark of times. Friends, he walked by faith and not by sight. To live the life that is led by God is to live the word of God. Man, how many of you want that? <laughs> to, no matter what life throws at you, no matter what the kingdom of darkness throws at you, to be able to cling to the word and say, you know what? This is more necessary than, or this is more a treasure to me than my necessary food. To make the word so familiar, to, to make the word so personal that when life happens, when stuff happens, you know, wait, God's word is more real than even this that I'm going through right now. Ah, by faith. We can walk by faith and not by sight upon the living word of God.